Good afternoon. All right, we'll get right into this because I know we may be a few minutes behind. The next three messages I present, each will represent each of the three angels' messages. So today will be the first angel's message. And um, I ask you to pray for me today because I, I, I know the, the enemy is really messing with me today. So I'm asking for you to pray even as I pray. Our scripture is going to, I'm going to read our scripture chapter 14, starting at verse 6. The scripture says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. And to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea, and the fountains of water. Our message this afternoon is entitled, In the Court of the Creator, the first angel's message. Let us pray. Father God, I ask you now, Lord, to once again make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard today. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. I'll read it again. This is one of the great uh, passages of Scripture, Revelation 14 in its entirety, the whole chapter, we are well aware that really probably the most unique doctrine to us is the sanctuary message. Amen? And actually we heard Professor Weiss speak on that um, just over the last couple of nights. But one of the other ones that is really at least relatively unique, and someone can tell me after if there's another denomination that does this or another group that does this, is the idea that the, the messages of these three angels in the book of Revelation in chapter 14 needs to be given to the entire world. That is unique to us as well. The scripture says in, in verse 6, and there are four lessons to get out of, this, out of this passage of scripture, these two verses. John says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Four lessons, and I'll give them to you up front. And then we'll go through each one of these things. The first one is that the gospel is everlasting. And we'll get into that, but, but I want to say that not only is the, is the substance of the gospel everlasting, but the consequences, the result of the gospel are also everlasting. Number two, all people are to receive this gospel. The third, 
hour of his judgment is come. So whatever time this, this message jumps on the scene, at that time, the judgment will begin. And we learned last night, that's good, I can skip this part. Last night we learned, it, this happened around 1844, around that whole movement of time. And in 1844, Christ moved into the most holy place, in the heavenly sanctuary. So the hour of his judgment is come, right now. Four, worship him because he did what? He created all things. The gospel's everlasting. Everyone is to get it. He's going to judge the world and is judging the world. And you must worship him because he's the one who created everything. Now watch this. Ella White says this um, in the book From Here to Forever, page 235. She says, the first angel's message of Revelation 14 was designed to separate the professed people of God from corrupting influences. In this message, God sent to the church a warning which, had it been accepted, would have corrected the evils that were shutting them away from him. Had they received the message, humbling their hearts and seeking a preparation to stand in his presence, the Spirit of God would have been manifested. The church would again have reached that unity faith and love of apostolic days when the believers were of one heart and of one soul and when the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now let me tell you something. One of the consequences that happened because the first angel's message was not fully received by the Christians in the world at the time to whom it was preached is that the church itself was weakened. She goes on, Eloise says, an angel represents the exalted character of the work to be accomplished by the message and the power and glory that were to attend it. The, the angel's flight in the midst of heaven, the loud voice and its promulgation to every nation and kindred and tongue and people give evidence of the rapid worldwide extent of the movement as to the time when it is to take place. It announces the opening of the judgment. When this gospel jumped on the scene, it spread rapidly. We heard about that last night as well. It is the most extensive uh, message to have been preached. What we as Adventists have is in more countries, as we just learned last night, that, uh, uh, than any other, de any other denomination. Only the Catholic Church really does any job in keeping pace. And let me submit this. It is not simply that we have churches. In these countries we have, in many of these countries, we have schools, the second largest parochial school system in the world, as well as hospitals, the second largest hospital and healthcare system in the world as well, all claimed by Adventists. Now here's where the numbers get incredible. There are over a billion Catholics. I'm not sure that there are even 30 million Seventh-day Adventists. God has been aiding this work, and it has had a great impact because of that work. And understanding these simple but relevant truths is imperative if we are to finish the work that is to be done. So the first lesson, the gospel is everlasting. 
Verse 6, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. Here is the gospel in a nutshell. We're going to go through it in a nutshell. First, the gospel starts with some bad news. The bad news is, according to Romans 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and done what? And have fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us in our own merit is right with God. What people say is, but... Dr. Walsh, I'm a good person. I, I, I give to uh, charities in my neighborhood. I volunteer uh, at places. I don't uh, beat people up. Uh, you know, I, I have occasional drink maybe, but, but I'm a good person. Why would God not accept me? Because inherently, you're sinful. The stain of sin, which comes from our sinful nature, is upon every one of us. That is the bad news. Uh, and and it, it goes on because Romans 6 and verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is what? But the gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The bad news that the wages, in other words, when you say wages, it means that the salary, the payment, the reward for sin is death. When you live a sinful life and you are, are willing to re reject the free gift that God has for you, what you're saying is, I want a paycheck. And I want that paycheck in its, in its amount, uh, in, in what is written on the a line where the value of it is. I want it to say death. We were talking about investing earlier. And I like investing. I've gotten into it a bit. Let me tell you something, every day, all day, with how we think and live, we are investing. Either we are investing into eternity with God, or we are investing into damnation forever. The good news, because that's what the gospel means, the gospel means good news. The good news, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ Jesus died for us. You know what? I've learned to apply this to my own life because, you see, I'm a sinner. And there were times, even though I knew better, I intentionally walked into sin. I remember coming home from college at Oakwood, Adventist school, very um, spiritual school at the time with great preachers like C.D. Brooks and E.E. Cleveland and, and, and E.C. Ward and all of these great preachers, Benjamin Reeves. I went to school with, with guys who could preach. I taught and learned from them. But I went home one New Year's, and this is what the verse says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I believe God is looking out for our salvation even before some of us had the good sense to know we needed saving. And I went to a nightclub. It was a New Year's Eve weekend. I went home and I was hanging out with my cousin. And we went to a nightclub in Miami, Florida. It was a Jamaican nightclub. Now, if you don't know much about Jamaicans, you know their nightclubs can be quite dangerous. In fact, across the street from the Jamaican nightclub was a black American nightclub where one of the big rap groups owned the nightclub. And between the two clubs, you were guaranteed someone was going to get shot, stabbed, hurt, killed. So what the police did is they just lined up a few police cars and they lined up ambulances on the street that, so that you wouldn't have to call them. 
They were just there waiting for who needed to be carted out. And I know this is true because when I worked in, when I, later on when I was in medical school and I did my trauma surgery rotation at the University of Miami at the Ryder Trauma Center there, um, one, in one of those Saturday nights when I was on call for trauma, 14 young men were shot. Three of them died. So here I am in a nightclub with that kind of dare. It tells you, you know, I didn't have good sense. I, don't, I don't, never drank. I just, I just like to be where the people are, hanging out, listening to the music. And of course, there are girls there. So it wasn't hard for my cousin to convince me to go. And we get in there, and my cousin and I are just bopping around in the club and walking around and not really talking to many people, just listening to the reggae music. And I accidentally, as I'm walking, church, I step on the foot. I step on the foot of a guy who is sitting there drinking a Heineken. Jamaicans love Heineken. I have no idea why. And, and I step on the guy's foot, and I just keep walking. And the guy takes the Heineken bottle he's drinking, and he busts it over the head of the guy behind me. My cousin was in front of me. And with that, a massive brawl breaks out. I didn't know that the guy whose foot I stepped on was what they call a don. In fact, the Jamaicans say he's a don dada. And I stepped on his foot, and they went to war. In fact, my cousin grabbed me by the hand, and we ran out of the club to the car and went home. Turns out the next day that there was a massive traumatic brawl. And whenever I read this verse, I have to think that God knew he needed me or he would want to use me later on. I wouldn't say he needed me, but he wanted to use me later on. And I believe that before I had the good sense to know I needed him while I was still a sinner. Christ was willing to apply mercy to me that I did not deserve. Do you know the difference between grace and mercy? The difference between grace and mercy is grace means that you get what you could never have worked for or gained on your own. That's grace. Mercy says you don't get what you did deserve, and that is eternal damnation. Grace and mercy are two closely related but different things. In this case, in this case I would say God gave me mercy. Because I deserve to have that bear bottle busted upside of my head for being dumb enough to be in a place where the police just sat around waiting for somebody to be shot. That's a powerful part of the gospel, is that God is ahead of you in saving you. The good news, you can be saved through faith in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace, unmerited, undeserved favor, you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can do what? Nobody can boast. Does this mean that you don't need to try and live a victorious life over sin? Absolutely not. It doesn't mean that you don't have a role to play. What it says is no matter how good you are at playing the role, you'll never be good enough to save yourself. That simple faith, Gospel Workers, page 161, that simple faith which takes God at his word should be encouraged. God's people must have that faith which, while, which will lay hold of divine power. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That simple faith which takes God at his word should be encouraged. This is why Abraham, even when he had not been right yet with God, he was still going to marry Hagar. He was still going to have Ishmael. Yet when he stepped outside and God showed him the stars, and, and, and the Bible says, and Abraham believed God, the Bible says it was credited to him for righteousness. I don't want you to miss this. It is by faith that you get credited righteousness. And the gospel is the difference. I told you in my walk, I, when, I, when I was, and I need to finish something I started yesterday. I wanted to go back and tell you that one of the things I had to do in terms of forgiveness in the gospel, later on when I was after medical school, I, at one of our alumni weekends for the medical school, I went back to medical school because I wanted to find people who I had insulted. And in this case, because I was such a black militant, I went back to medical school to find some of the white students I had offended and apologize. Because I've learned the difference in our religion and all the other ones is that I cannot work my way into salvation. Again, faith without works is dead. I, 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 I can't just say, look, God, I'm saved. Once I'm saved, I'm always saved. That's the doctrine of the devil. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, I understand I've got to rely totally on Christ. When I am able, I must make what was wrong right. So I ask for forgiveness. Every other religion in the world will ask you to work your way to nirvana. In fact, if you don't get it right the first time in some religions, they send you back to start over as a slug or a moth or a bee. I don't want to be a slug. You ever see a slug? It's all slimy on the ground. I wouldn't want to be a part of religion where I got to come back as a slug. That would be painful. Others say you got to work. You've got to work perfectly all the way through. In fact, in Catholicism, you not only have to work, sometimes you have to pay your way into heaven. Read up. There's one of the biologies of John F. Kennedy that I read. And in the biology, the author says that the Kennedy family, John F. Kennedy, famous former president of the United States of America, who was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, uh, on November 22nd, I believe it was 1962, or 63. John F. Kennedy's family actually paid 10,000 U.S. dollars to have the Catholic Church move him from purgatory into heaven. You know how much 10,000 U.S. dollars was in, in the early 1960s? You could have bought a whole bunch of properties with that money. But guess what he couldn't buy? A mansion in heaven. That was money was wasted. You'd never get to. He'll never get to heaven. True Bible Christianity says, "I am going to be saved because I trust God completely. Because my faith is in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how the Christian makes it into eternal life." And I'm a Christian because I like the idea that I must submit my will, my nature, my way. I must submit it to Jesus Christ and allow him to take over. And you know why a lot of people don't get victory over sin? I, read a, I, read, I have a devotional by Morris Venden I love called Faith by Works. Faith that works. Faith that works. Morris Venden. 
And in it, he has a thing where he says, one of the reasons people don't get victory over sin is they spend their whole life looking down at their sin. You focus on what you're doing wrong. You focus on what you're doing wrong. And what happens is you never turn your eyes up and look at Jesus. And, and what he says, is, which is in line with the spirit of prophecy in the scripture, is if your focus becomes studying Jesus, getting to know Jesus, having a communion with Jesus, so you turn off the TV, you get rid of the bad music, and you start to focus on Jesus and who he is, you know what happens? Slowly but surely, you begin to be more like Jesus. In fact, the hymn says it like this, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the three things of earth will do what? They'll grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You have a sin problem you can't beat? Stop worrying about the sin and say, you know what? In 2020, by the end of the year, I'm going to have read all four gospels. I'm going to have read the book, The Desire of Ages. I'm going to read um, uh, all of the other books that are written about Christ, books like Steps to Christ. And by the end of the year, see how much of a spiritually different place you are in. Turn your eyes upon him. The second one, is that all people are to receive the gospel, right? And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth and to every, look at this, every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So first, the gospel is everlasting. It will last forever. Its results will last forever. Its concept is everlasting. In fact, when we get to heaven, we will study through the ceaseless ages of eternity the science of salvation. Here, everyone is to get the gospel. Preach that I'm all on earth. And that means that this thing has to go around the globe. This is, I believe, why the Adventist church has been successful into getting into so many nations. Because we've been driven by a mandate that other folk have not accepted. So one of the things that this brought, with me, brought up to me was the need to, to kind of go back to some of the stuff I talked about yesterday. And I want to say that one of the reasons that this one has been a challenge is because sometimes we think that there are people who don't really deserve the gospel. Sometimes that's just people who we think behave bad or who don't deserve it for other reasons. Sometimes it's even racial, along racial lines. Now, one of the reasons I love the story of Mary Magdalene is she, of all people, did not deserve to be so close to Jesus, according to what the Jewish leadership would have said. In fact, they said once, if, he, if this man were a prophet, he would know what type of woman is touching his foot. But why does Jesus spend so much time with her? I, I quoted this earlier in the week. It is because whom has been forgiven much, he said, loves much. Jesus goes after everybody because Jesus wants to redeem, and I believe, like the story of the prodigal, God gets, and I, I believe he really loves when someone who's gone even farther out comes all the way back. So one of the things, again, is race. I want to read a couple. I didn't get to read these yesterday. I, I put them in here because they fit. This is from the book, The Southern Work. This is the book Ellen White wrote when white Adventists in the northern part of the United States were hesitant to move into the South after slavery. It is, it's, it's really interesting because as Professor Vyth is talking about the fact that the slaves were freed and then this movement happened, right? The timing was perfect. It also allowed that the gospel could be freely preached all over the United States. If not, there would have been no way to preach to black slaves. It would have been illegal. It would have been illegal. It wouldn't have been allowed. And what happened is, um, as this happens, 
Ellen White writes a book called The Southern Work, a book that most Adventists, many of us don't even know exists. It is, to me, the quintessential book on race relations written by the prophet of this church. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So when I was working at Loma Linda University, on a Sunday morning, I was working urgent care. I was the medical director for the urgent care for the university. Um, and one of the nurses comes in, one of our white nurses comes in, and she slams a stack of papers down on the desk where I'm working. Bam! She looks at me, she says, Dr. Walsh, Ellen White was a racist. I'm like eating oatmeal. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, she was a racist. She said, in Sabbath school class yesterday, the teacher showed us that Ellen White was a racist and that we should, re basically, because of that, she should be rejected. On this paper were about five or six quotes taken out of context. And she, I said, so I said to her, I said, now, how much did this Sabbath school teacher discuss the book, The Southern Work? She said, what book, The Southern Work? I've never heard of such a book. I said, how could someone accuse Ellen White of racism if they never read her book on, that really addresses race relations in the United States? The principles of which, as I'm about to show you, apply for the rest of Earth's history and to all the Earth. She said, I never discussed it. And I told her, I said, you know, one of the things I learned that one of her sons, the one that was, she was having some trouble with, when he got his act together, she had a vision. She was in Australia. I was in Australia. I went to her house in Australia. And the and her, and lady that was giving us the tour of, the house in, of Ellen White's house in Australia said that she had a vision in Australia. She was on the beach and some, something happened and she, you know, to her son while they were on the beach in, in this vision. So she wrote her son back in America a letter about the vision and that he, you know, bad things could happen to him if he didn't get his life right with God. Now let me tell you something. Most of us, our mothers would tell us, you need to get your life right with God or something bad's going to happen. But when your mother's a prophet, <laughs> you, you really have to listen to your mother. She's not, not just conjecture now. She probably wrote out the whole vision to him. Long story short, she actually sends her own son after the U.S. Civil War when race tensions were high at the time when the Ku Klux Klan came into existence. She sent her white son down the Mississippi River on a boat called the Morning Star, and he landed in, northern Alabama, in the area near northern Alabama. And that is how Oakwood University was established. Ellen White told them where to put it and uh, even visited the campus at one point. Her son established the school. And I said to the nurse that day, does that sound like something a racist would do? Would you send your son into the South where if he's taught teaching black children at the time after the Civil War, he himself would be lynched? Doesn't sound like a, a racist to me. And that school, let me tell you something, Oakwood University, that school is, to this day is still in the top seven, top six colleges and universities in the United States to produce black doctors. To this day, and I went to school, there all, I know dozens of, of physicians who come out of that school. In fact, right now I'm helping to sponsor a young man I met in Ghana who wants to be a physician, and he's at Oakwood University now. Let me tell you something. When she established it, it was prophetic because not only did it produce physicians, it produced some of the greatest preachers to ever walk in America. Was Ellen White a racist? 
Did she understand the first angel's message that's gospel must be preached everywhere? Absolutely. Watch this. The Southern Work, page 43. Walls of separation have been built up between the whites and the blacks. These walls of prejudice will tumble down of themselves, as did the walls of Jericho, when Christians obey the word of God, which enjoins on them supreme love to their maker and impartial love to their neighbors. In fact, it's such a powerful lesson. Many of you know who that is. Who's that? That is Muhammad Ali. When I was in Israel, I was walking through the Arab section of Jerusalem, um, probably one of the few black Americans they'd seen at the time, and it was hysterical. Many of the Arabs ran out of their storefronts and hugged me, and they said, uh, Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I said, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is almost seven foot tall. I'm not Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, sir. There's Muhammad Ali. There's Malcolm X. His Arabic name is El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz. Brilliant thinker and writer. Actually, I mean, I've read must, much of what he published, what he's written. I, I think he was one of the smartest men to ever live uh, in, in America. These are his three daughters here when they were babies, and they were good friends because they were members of the religion I was telling you about yesterday, the Nation of Islam. Farrakhan took over this, and uh, Malcolm X was assassinated not long actually after John F. Kennedy was assassinated. A lot to that story. I won't get into that today. But I tell you all of that to show you this slide. In Malcolm X's autobiography, a book I've read probably three or four times, on page 21, there is this pearl hidden for the Seventh-day Adventist church. It says, before long, my mother spent much time with the Adventists. Malcolm X's mother became a Seventh-day Adventist. Watch this. We began to go with my mother to the Adventist meetings that were held further out in the country. For us children, I know it was the good food they served. Watch this. The Adventists felt we were living at the end of time, that the world soon was coming to an end. Look at this last line. But they were the friendliest white people I had ever seen. There's two powerful statements in there. One, Malcolm X liked that gluten too. Ain't that a good thing? <laughs> but what a testimony that last line is. Malcolm X, who goes on to be the most prolific, most revered black nationalist in the history of the United States, the only comment he has about Adventism in his autobiography, even though his mother converted to Adventism and was an Adventist, his father was a Garveyite, Marcus Garvey follower, Garveyite Baptist preacher who was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan on a train track. This is one of the reasons he was such an angry man. His father had been killed by the Klan. Yet, when he brushed into Christianity again, he brushed into Christianity again through his mother's uh, 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 allegiance and joining of the Adventist church. And he says, in fact, those were the friendliest white people he'd ever met. This is required mandatory reading in urban America, in every school almost. You see why it's so important that we love whoever comes in the door? You don't know who's going to go out and become famous and write a book like this and the whole world read it. Imagine if you had said in here that those white people treated us just as bad as every other white person. What a testimony when a, ten, uh, a, a young person in the 10th grade in America reads this and sees that the Seventh-day Adventists, not only does Malcolm X share the doctrine of the first angel's message, look, they thought, I said, listen, 
He speaks, now she's, she's really writing to the people up in, the, up in Michigan, up at the General Conference. She said, listen, you guys think you're special. But I tell you one day, the very people that you're ignoring now and you're giving resistance to going to assist in the deep south of the United States, one day, those very people will be the people others will want to exchange places with because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Ellen White also understood that although the slave master in the south was supposed to be Christian, many of them were, probably most of them weren't. Some of them were, were kind and fair and fed well and taught them the Bible. Others were brutal and torturous. But Ellen White understood that the blacks in the South would one day be the, some of the strongest Christians in America. In fact, today when they do surveys, they say that the backbone of all Christianity in America are black women. Character counts, Ellen White says in the Southern work. If they believe on him, his cleansing blood is applied to them. The black man's name is written in the book of life besides the white man's. All are one in Christ. Birth, station, nationality, or color cannot elevate or degrade men. Look at the last line there. The character makes the man. You see that? There's no reason for me. And when I came out of my spout, my, my um, I'll say my time in racism. I, I, I would go to Atlanta and I would look for meetings by a group called the All African People's Revolutionary Party. I met with Kwame Torre, who was once known as Stokely Carmichael, who moved back to Africa to be a revolution. And actually, was, when I met him, he was actually involved in revolution in Africa. And I was at Oakwood as a student. I remember meeting him and I said, you know what? I'm not sure I want to be a revolutionary. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I'm moving to Africa to shoot people. I, I just didn't think that was a good idea for me, personally. But I learned in that process that one of the things I learned was evil is in all people. And really, it only matters who has power. If you take the power from the lowest people in many countries and gave it to the, uh, and gave it, and switched it so that the people with all the power had no power and you flip-flopped it, you would find that the atrocities just flip-flop in most cases. The third lesson, the hour of his judgment is come. The hour of his judgment is come. Acts 17, 31. So there's a few things that they say in America when they try to attack the doctrine of the, of the pre-advent judgment. People will attack us on a lot of things. One of, them, one of the things I hear a lot of Christians, non-Adventists say is, Christians will not go through judgment. The church will not be judged. They say that. In fact, they say all judgment that needed to happen happened at the cross, I've heard people say. So there will be no judgment after the cross is one of the things that they teach. But look at what the Bible says, Acts 17 and verse 31. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, wherefore he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. He has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. And this was uh, written, Luke was writing here in Acts 17, but he was saying the judgment was in front of them, ahead of them. The cross was, the crucifixion was behind them. Now watch this. I like this one, because Paul is in this one. He, Acts 24, 25, and as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, the Bible says Felix trembled. Isn't that incredible? 
Felix trembled. Three principles, righteousness, temperance, and judgment. And isn't it crazy to this day, when you bring up those three topics, people still tremble? The Adventist church is, gets its resistance against, in many ways, these three things. But it still speaks of a judgment to come. The judgment comes after the cross, Romans 14, 10 through 12. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And let me tell you why, why this matters. Because one of the things that causes people to run from church and God, make them atheists, and do all these different things, is because they never want to have to stand before God and give an account. And I've brought people, I've been in discussions with people and they don't believe and they push back. And I'll simply, before I say, I'll say listen, whatever we you, we, you and I agree on or don't agree on, here's the truth. One day, you will have to stand before God and give an account of your life. People do not like to hear that. In fact, I've been told some choice words because of that. Some say God won't judge his people. Well, will God judge his people? Hebrews 10.30, the Lord shall judge his people. People say that he won't judge the church. It's right there. Yes, he will. And it says in 1 Peter 4.17, for the time has come that judgment must begin where? At the house of God. And if, if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? Judgment will come. And the house of God will be judged first. And why will the house of God be judged first? Because the house of God gets the reward. This is why he says, look, behold, I come quickly and my reward is what? With me. He has to judge before he gets here. How could he determine who gets to go with him if he hasn't judged? So guess what? You actually want to be in that first wave of judgment. So the place of the judgment after the cross clearly states that there will be a judging of God's people after the cross. Those texts all tell us those two things. But it also gives us the hint. The other thing is the two books. This is one of my favorite things in the Bible is to look at these books that God writes and that he has. Revelation 20 and verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. You see how it separates the books. There are books that are open, the book of works. Then there's a book of life. Another book was opened. Two sets of books. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written where? In the books according to what? You know one of the things, that when, I was a, uh, when I was a kid in the church and they, they tell us that it was always amazing to me, is that there are angels recording everything I do. And you know, had I, had I kept that in my mind, I might have lived a better life. Everything you've done, everything you will do is being recorded. Not is the book of works. There is no hiding from God. I'm going to talk about pornography a bit uh, uh, on, uh, probably on, in my last message. And one of the reasons pornography has proliferated so much is because there was a time when if a young boy wa uh, wanted to get to pornography, he'd have to sneak out of his house, sneak down to a store that sold the filthy magazines, and he'd have to figure out a way to get the money. He'd have to hide it from his mother all the way back to the from the store in his house. Not anymore. Now people can sin on their phone. Kids have ways to hide what their search engine has looked up. 
And so we have a, a massive addiction to pornography in the United States of America. I hope it's not here. But I want to tell, I tell young people everywhere, even if your mama never finds out what you've been looking at, even if she never knows the filth that you're involved in, God knows. And here's the thing. If you are hiding your sin from the church member and you are sneaking around to make sure the church people don't find out that you're spending time in the no-tell motel, you know what you do? You make the church people your God because guess what? God sees it all. It is written in the book of works. In fact, one of the ways that the Bible puts it, these three verses actually line it up nicely. Psalm 51.1 says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Look at what David says in Psalm 51.1. Blot out my transgressions. In the book of works, your sin is put there forever. But guess what? There's a way to have it blotted out. And, and the image that comes to my mind, I can see Jesus, the high priest, as the blood of the lamb. He's the priest and the lamb. And he takes the blood that he shed and he blots it. He puts it on something and he, and he takes it and he blots and blots. So that the blood covers the sin so that you no one can ever read it again. Your sin is blotted out. Isaiah 43 and verse 25, I, even I, am he that blots out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember your sins. This goes back to the everlasting gospel. It connects back around. I, I, I love Christianity because I serve a God who when he blots out my sin, he forgets my sin. Acts 3 and verse 19, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be what? Blot it out. There is a book of works that you will be judged out of. Let me make this thing plain. You're going to be judged out of that book. And if you are not careful, you can leave sin uncovered. In other words, you have got to get the kind of relationship with Christ where you are willing to repent Confess your sins, repent of your sins. Now here's what I've learned in my studies. Even repentance is not something we can do in our own power. Even that takes the Holy Ghost for us to do it. But I want you to get this. I don't care how, how, how dastardly it's been. You know, and and I, I, I forget who I was talking to in there telling me that, that in, in some parts of Africa, a, a woman has to show she's fertile by having a child before she's married. Is that true? No? Some people say it's true, some people don't. That, that's perfectly okay. Let me say this, because that doesn't matter. Because in America, nobody's trying to prove fertility. They just have kids out of wedlock, so there's no real rhyme or reason. Happens like crazy. But here's the thing. Purity matters, young people. I'll talk more about this in an upcoming talk. But what they taught me when I was a, a, a kid in church is that your life is like a table. And when you make a mistake... It's like someone takes a nail and puts it to the table and hammers the nail into your life, into the table. Now, God is merciful because the hammer has a back, and you can take the back of the hammer and pull the nail out. But guess what is left there? A hole. So when we sin, we make holes in the table. The blood of Jesus Christ can be used, and it can fill in the holes. But guess what? Even then, there's a, the, the, the stain of that thing is still there. The mark of it is still there. It's, it's, is there something still on your table? I challenge you to remember, one, 
that everything you do is being recorded. And remember, too, that only the blood of Christ can blot that thing out. But three, even when it's blotted out, we have internal consequences that will carry with us when we indulge in sin when we know better. So I hope nobody would be doing anything where they, you know, purposefully are having premarital sex to prove anything. Sin is a serious disease, not one to play with. So, Daniel 12, 1, and, and at that time thy people shall be delivered. This is the second set of books, the book of life. Uh, second book, the book of life. And at that time thy people shall be deliver, delivered. Everyone that shall be written in the book. Revelation 20, 15, and whosoever was not found, written where? And the book of life was cast where? Into the lake of fire. So here's the thing. One, in the book of works, I want my sin blotted out. In fact, the way, the way that I was always taught it is like a panor in, in, in the judgment, it's almost like there's a panoramic view of your life playing behind you. And as Eric Wall stands there, vulnerable in front of the universe, with the angels and everyone there, all of a sudden my life is playing, and I'm embarrassed because I know at certain points in my life how, how, how filthy, how, how, how dastardly I've been. But if I've given my life to Jesus and been covered by the blood of the Lamb, when those scenes come, that would embarrass me. That would show my nakedness. The screen just goes blood red. Jesus, the defense attorney, stands up in the court and says, I paid the price for him. His sin has been covered by my blood. Jesus does something else. He writes my name in the book of life. Revelation 3, 5, He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And so those people who tell you, once you're saved, you're always saved, this verse is the direct and appropriate uh, verse to end that discussion. Your name can be in the book of life and then be blotted out. In fact, Paul says in, 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 in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says that there's a crown waiting for him. A crown of righteousness. In Revelation, the Bible says, be careful lest another man do what? Take your crown. Don't let anybody tell you you're saved, you don't have to worry about it ever again, and you can go walk in in foolishness and sin. Just like your sins can be blotted out of the book of works, your name can be blotted out of the book of life. Last one. He created all things. Now this one, I'll take a little time with, because as a scientist, this is one of the things that always fascinated me. I'll never forget when I was in about the sixth grade, my mother, did, we didn't have, we didn't go to Adventist school until I went to college. I went to, from public school my whole life up until I went to Oakwood. And in like my fifth or sixth grade science class, we began to discuss evolution. At that time, many of my teachers, I remember one French Canadian teacher of mine was a Christian and she would encourage us in Christian things. I don't know that she'd have a job today if she did that. But I ran into a teacher eventually who was a staunch evolutionist. And her chief, I think she felt her job was to make sure we all were evolutionists at the little elementary school I went to. And so she had a book that she gave us called The Story of Evolution. I'll never forget it. And we were going through this little picture. It was a really cute picture book with dinosaurs and, 
every day, and it was like a character, like a, the guy that led it was like a, looked like a cartoon character, right? They're smart. Remember when they want to sell cigarettes to children? They made a character called Joe Camel. When they want to get children, they characterize things so the children will accept it. And they did that with us around evolution. And I was reading through this book at school every day for a few weeks, and I started to say, wait a minute, maybe the people at church are wrong. I was just a little kid. And, I, and we got deep into the book, and finally I said, this is it. i got to show my mother. Evolution is really what's going on. So I take the book home to my Jamaican mother. <laughs> you guys know where this is going, don't you? And I take out the book, and I say, Mom, I, 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 was, I, was, a, I was a forceful little kid. I said, Mom, I think we're wrong. I, I don't think God created the world. In fact, according to the teacher, we evolved. And I said, Mom, look. And I pulled the book out of my book bag, and I handed the book, the evolution, the story of evolution. And my mother looked at me like I was crazy. She didn't hit me which is what I thought she would have done in hindsight. But when my mother started, she, she sat with me, and she went back to the Bible, and she began to outline the texts. And then she started to go through the book with me. My, mom, my mother was not a scientist. Her degrees were all in business. She started to go back through it. And then later on, when we went to church that Sabbath, she made sure to have someone, in, uh, one of the Sabbath school teachers, actually go over this thing with me. If she had not done that, that seed would have stayed planted in my mind. I want to submit to you, and later on, I was persecuted. One of the things I told you Sunday night, I was ridiculed for publicly in an editorial in the Los Angeles Times when they took my job for being a Christian, is that I believe God created the world. Why is there this fight against this truth in the first angel's message? Why is there so much? And Professor Weith, I've, I've listened to his testimony, he's gone through it as well. Many, many, some of you have gone through this. There is a war over this principle, and I've come to the conclusion there are many reasons why, but the first one is this. If God is not telling the truth, in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, if he's lying to you that he created the heavens and the earth, how do you believe God anywhere else in the Bible? Fundamentally, many of the attacks we see now, it's less about the actual issue as much as it is about destroying confidence in the word of God. And if you don't understand these things, you will easily and quickly be swept away. So, look over here. Revelation 14, 7 says, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. That's what the angel shouts. With a loud voice, this first angel, fear God and give glory to him. Why do you need to do this? One, is the hour of his judgment has come. Glorify God because he's about to judge the world. Then he says, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. In fact, evolution, which comes up around the same time, it's interesting, all in the middle of the 1800s, comes up around the same time. Charles Darwin comes up. And when you study Charles Darwin's life, you, it's as if he was set up to do this. I could go deeper, but it gets a little bit, people are saying I'm doing conspiracy theory stuff. Talk to me afterward. It gets a little uh, uh, controversial. But he, he gets in here, look, and he starts to try and break down. This isn't true. But if, if God didn't really create the world, watch this, he has no right to judge the world. Are you getting this? It was a direct attack on the movement and the doctrine that was going to launch at that time, or that did launch. Now watch this. Genesis 1-1, you all know this. It says, in the beginning, 
God created the heaven and the earth. If that, if the first verse of the Bible establishes this truth, it makes sense that that is the first place the devil would want to destroy it. And I'm going to show you that it's intertwined into other things that we believe. Exodus 20 and verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord did what? Blessed the Sabbath day, and he hallowed it. What's interesting is, if you look at it, these, this wordage, and it's not just here, but other verses, this wordage and this wordage are very similar. In fact, you can see that once you understand God created the world, what is the memorial that God created the world? The Sabbath. So it's all tied up in the first angel's message, isn't it? Now, I went to the Creation Research Institute's museum. It used to be in San Diego, California. So California's gone a little crazy. So I think whoever ran it had to pack up, and they moved all the way to Kentucky. And they rebuilt it. And if you go to Kentucky, they have a life-size model of the ark in Kentucky, of the Noah's Ark. It's, it's really interesting stuff. But when I went into that museum, I took a bunch of kids from church, and they were going through the days of the week and showing you how creation, really good information for young people at church, how creation is a scientific, um, scientifically viable way of looking at the world's origins. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. We go through the whole week. We get to the seventh day, and on the wall, because everything was up on the wall, it's just blank. And it says, and God rested. And the guy was ready to move on to go show us dinosaurs and stuff in the flood. And I said, wait, hold on. You can't just skip the Sabbath in a creation museum. And the guy says, what do you mean? Nothing happened on the Sabbath. I said, oh, yes, it did, sir. A whole lot happened on the Sabbath. You see, when God rested on the Sabbath, he hallowed the Sabbath. He made that day special and set it apart. And I said, sir, you're not doing anyone a service if you don't tell them that if they had continued to keep the Sabbath, evolution would never have come on the scene. The Sabbath is a safeguard against the idea that God didn't create the world. And the reason the whole world can believe it, even Christians, and I showed you the quote, the newspaper clipping from the Pope, when Pope John Paul II said they accept evolution now, all of that goes back to a rejection of the day that was to be a memorial in time. Weekly we are to remember that yes, God created the world. So I'm going to give you some interesting quotes. Charles Darwin in his book, The Origin of Species, this is in, came out I think 1857 or 1859, says to suppose that the eye with all its in, inimitable uh, contrivances for adjusting the focus of different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Now, when you look this up online, the evolutionists will say, well, this is taken out of context. But even when I've read the whole thing in context, he still does not at all explain how the eye could have evolved. He starts speaking about nerves that are sensitive in the very passage, nerves that are sensitive to light. But here's the problem. The human eye is not perfect. There are animals that can see much better than we do. Why, if the human was once a hunter-gatherer, and why, if it took us millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years to fully evolve, however long they say, why did not eyes keep evolving so we have vision like an eagle? 
Are you getting what I'm saying? Why wouldn't we be given that advantage? Why do eyes actually grow dim as we get older? In many cases. You see, the thing is this. If you needed sight to, uh, to avoid a saber-toothed tiger on day number one of the first 200,000 years of man's ev uh, evolution, right? Would, you, would the tiger sit around and wait for your eyes to catch up and he eats you 200,000 years later when you can see him good? Are you getting my point? Sight is much, and the evolution, there's so much written on this. They get so mad about this because creationists always, always show this. But the truth of the matter is there's a point here. If it's irreducibly complex, how did it evolve? If you needed it on day one, how did it evolve? Well, the American Scientist magazine, January of 1955, says this. From the probability standpoint, the ordering of the present environment into a single amino acid molecule would be utterly improbable in all the time and space available for the origin of terrestrial life. That is, and this, these are not Christians talking now, this, this is secular stuff. They're saying everything we have and all the time we've had, it would still be impossible to just make an amino acid. You need an amino acid to make a protein. You need proteins to make cells. You need cells to make organisms. They're saying it would have been impossible just to get an amino acid. Or improbable, he says. A Swiss mathematician, Charles Eugene Guy, actually computes the odds against such an occurrence at only one chance in 10 to the 160. That means 10 multiplied by itself 160 times, a number too large even to articulate. Chance. And here's the problem with evolution. You know in America, we, we are afraid that we're going to get shot all the time. Did you guys know that? Now, when you go into a meeting, if you, if you go into a meeting in the United States, one of the first things they tell you is where the exits are in case a shooter comes in, you know, in almost every meeting I go to now. In fact, when you get a new job, one of the first things you have to do, you have to take active shooter training. In church, during divine service at my church in California, the Adventist conference mandated that we have active shooter training. Two police officers had to come to church and actually show us what to do if someone walks into the church shooting. During divine service, that's what we had to do. Mandated by the conference. And you know, a church is a bad place for there to be a mass shooting because the only thing you can hide behind are pews. And don't, they don't make good hiding places, as far as I'm concerned. And, and people are asking in America, why the rapid increase in mass shootings? Like I told you the other day, I've taken care of patients who were in, in the Las Vegas mass shooting. Some of our friends, that the, the mass shooting in San Bernardino, California, that was miles away from Loma Linda University, some of my friends witnessed the whole thing. People saying, why the mass shootings? You know what the answer to me is? We took God out of the school in America. We forbid the Bible. You can bring any other religious book to a public school in America, and no one will ever bat an eye. You bring a Bible to school in America, and kids have been tossed out of school. There's no more prayer. There's no more God. And evolution is now the religion of America and atheism. And I argue that, listen, one of the problems besides the broken family and other spiritual influences in entertainment is that we have, we have produced a generation of young people who believe that their God is chaos and confusion. That it's all chance that made them come into existence. And here's the thing. If I am simply the product of random chance and chaos, 
Why should I respect your life? You understand what I'm saying? I think we're going to see more and more and more of these uh, crazy occurrences happening, and I believe that they will begin to spread around the world. The amount of matter to be shaken together to produce a single molecule of protein would be millions of times greater than the whole, in, that in the whole universe. For it, uh, it, for it to occur on Earth alone would require many, almost endless billions of years. The evidence of God in an expanding universe, page 23. The more statistically improbable a thing is, the less we can believe that it just happened by blind chance. Superficially, the obvious alternative to chance is an intelligent designer. This is Richard Dawkins who said that. Now, the chance that higher life forms might have emerged in this way is comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. It is a, listen, the one thing, it is a statistical, basically a statistical impossibility. Could tornadoes one day put together a Boeing 747 out of a junkyard? I guess it's, nothing's impossible, but would it actually ever really happen? That's evolution. The opportune appearance of mutations permitting animals and plants to meet their needs seems hard to believe, yet the Darwinian theory is even more demanding. Look at this. A single plant, a single animal, would require thousands and thousands of lucky, lucky appropriate events. Thus, miracles would become the rule. You see that? Events with an in infinitesimal probability could not fail to occur. There's no law against daydreaming, this author says, but science must not indulge in it. Pierre-Paul Gross, Night to Evolution of Living Organism. Then there's the book in the page. Malcolm Mugridge of the Pascal Lectures Ontario, Canada at the University of Waterloo says, I myself am convinced that the theory of evolution, especially to the extent to which it's been applied, will be one of the greatest jokes in the history books of the future. Posterity will marvel that so flimsy and dubious a hypothesis could be accepted with the credulity that it has. One day, this, this scientist just said, listen, one day, people are going to look back and laugh at us for believing. You, again, you can't test this thing. And my question when I was in college, when I did take classes at colleges where they taught evolution, at Oakwood, they taught us evolution and creation. They, they made sure we understand why we believe what we believe. But when I went to University of Alabama, Huntsville, Wake Forest University, University of Miami, and they taught this stuff, I mean, it really, it really didn't make any sense. Because here's the thing. The simple question is, where are all the evolving things now? Much of what they tell you is evolution is only, as, as Professor Vive points out well, it's only the genetic material already in someone expressing itself differently. We have shown that you can do that and it's not evolution. Epigenetics can do that. What they cannot show you is where one species literally becomes another species. The whole Jurassic Park franchise of movies, one of the things they say is that the, the, the dinosaurs evolved and became birds. So we're all to have dinosaur birds now. Are you getting what I'm saying? Doesn't make sense. Modern apes, for instance, seem to have sprung out of nowhere. They have no yesterday, no fossil record. And the true origin of modern humans, of upright, naked, tool-making, big-brained beings is, if we are to be honest with ourselves, an equally mysterious matter. Some of them are honest and they say, yeah, we believe it, but it, it doesn't really make sense. We're not just evolving slowly, Stephen Gould says. We're not just evolving slowly. Gould says, for all practical purpose, purposes, we're not evolving. 
There's no reason to think we're going to get bigger brains or smaller toes or whatever. We are what we are. You know what they're teaching children to get them to believe in this stuff? They, make, they made a cartoon. I should have put the slide up. They made a cartoon called The Missing Link, and they got the guy in a bow tie, and he's the missing link between. They, they can't find one, so they make cartoons about him. Or they tell you, you guys ever heard of the shows called The X-Men? Y'all ever heard of Marvel's The X-Men? Big franchise in the States of movies. The whole premise of The X-Men is that people mutate, they get an X gene, and then they get superpowers. You know what happens if you, if you really get mutation? A lot of times you get cancer. People die from mutations. I've, I've been a doctor a long time. I've not met one person who walked in and because of some mutation, they could stretch their arm out and they go out that door. Or fly. Or, or shoot fire from their hands. You get what I'm saying? But Hollywood is brilliant. The Planet of the Apes movies, all of these things are to try and teach you that evolution is a fact. They don't just sell it to our children through the educational system. They sell it through the entertainment system. So that most people just believe this as a fact. No one can, can conscientiously keep the seven-day Sabbath. Ellen White writing here, and Ellen White and her critics. No one can, uh, can, can consciously keep the seven-day Sabbath, a memorial of the fact that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and harbor any thought of evolution. Christian experience and teachings, when the foundations of earth were laid, then was also laid the foundation of the Sabbath. I was shown that if the true Sabbath had been kept, there would never have been an infidel or an atheist. The observance of the Sabbath would have preserved the world from idolatry. When Roger Murnau was worshiping demons, I don't have time to tell his whole story, and he was there with the demon priest, and the demon priest said to Roger Murnau, there are two great lies that the devil loves. Number one, the devil loves that the whole world thinks the first day of the week is the day of worship. Then the demon priest said to them, and this is at a mansion in Montreal, Canada, the demon priest says the other great lie is that when you die, you don't really die. The devil loves the lie that you die and you live forever because the wages of sin is what? Right? If you actually never did die, would you ever actually pay the price of sin? Even if you burn in hell forever alive, you still never actually would pay the price the Bible prescribes for sin. So he, the demon priest says, the devil loves that the whole world believes that Sunday is the day of worship. And that you, when you die, you don't really die. What Roger Murnau, who later becomes a Seventh-day Adventist, said, said there's a man sitting in the back raises his hand and says, what about the Adventists? The demon priest laughed. <laughs> I forgot about those Adventists. The demon priest says, because they keep the seven-day Sabbath, they cannot be deceived. Read it in the book, A Trip into the Supernatural by Roger Murnau. When Roger Murnau wanted to come out of demon-worshiping church, he was very worried. He was about to cross the line where you can't come back from. He's about to go through the ritual that you can't come back from. And he wanted an out. He went to get a job where a Jewish gentleman ran a, um, a, some kind of um, a, um, um, clothing factory. And when he got the job, the Jewish guy says to him, there's a black man over there, Cyril Gross is his name. I, I know his great-grandson. I've talked to him on the phone before. Cyril Gross, that, he says, that guy sitting there, that black man sitting there, he says, he has asked me that he could have the Sabbath off. And the Jewish owner of the factory says, I'm a Jew and I don't keep the Sabbath. He says, I want you to go work next to him and find out why does that black man keep the Sabbath? 
because I know he's not a Jew. Roger Minot says instantly, read the book. He understood that if he was going to get out of demon worship, it would be because he aligned himself with a guy who kept the Sabbath. Why did he know that? Because even the demon priest said, the Adventists cannot be deceived because they keep the seventh day Sabbath. And sure enough, long story short, Cyril Gross, Roger Minot went through all of like eight weeks worth of Bible studies in a week. Baptized and became a seventh day Adventist. The demons came after, but they could never touch him. In, as part of the first angel's message, one of the things that's real important is this idea that God created the world is attached to the seventh day Sabbath. And let me tell you something, church. There are two things in the Bible that offer you blessing. One of them is that you return a faithful tithe and offering. The Bible says if you do that, God will pour out. Some people are looking for a return, right? God, the Bible says God will open up the windows of heaven in Micah, he says, and pour out a blessing upon you that you will not have what? Room enough to receive it. But the other blessing comes from keeping the Sabbath. You know what the Bible says? If you keep the Sabbath, in Isaiah it says, God says, I will cause you to ride upon the high places of the earth. I challenge you. Remember the seventh day. Revelation 14, 6 and 7 again. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Ellen White says this, as the churches refused to receive the first angel's message, they rejected the light from heaven and fell from the favor of God. They trusted to their own strength and by opposing the first message, placed themselves where they could not see the light of the second angel's message. But the beloved of God who were, who were oppressed accepted the message, Babylon is fallen, and left the churches. It was to separate the church of Christ from the corrupting influence of the world that the first angel message was given. But with the multitude even of professed Christians, the ties which bound them to earth were stronger than the attractions heavenward. They chose to listen to the voice of worldly wisdom and turned away from the heart-searching message of truth. I'll leave that up there. Some of you have asked me if I'm selling any DVDs and stuff. I have nothing to sell. It's all for free. Just go online. There's dozens of, our, of, of sermons on there. But I want to close with this because I, as I was restudying about the, 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 the um, everlasting gospel, a story came to mind, one of my favorite sermon stories. It's a true story. It happened in the western United States of America. The western United States. I won't say which state. There was a young man who went to go and play poker. And he got into an argument with the guy he was across the table playing poker with. And the young man had had a few drinks, and he went into his bag, he pulled out a gun, true story, and he took, put out the gun, pointed across the table, and shot and killed the young man sitting across from him. Shot him dead. Boom, he just fell over. They called the police, the police came, the young man was arrested, and they took the young man, they took the young man to jail. The young man went in front of the judge, and you know this takes time in the state, takes maybe probably everywhere, it takes time to go through these criminal trials. And over the next few months and a, and a, a few short years, he eventually was convicted of murder in the first degree, and he was sentenced 
to death. He was sentenced to die in the electric chair. While all of this was going on, his family said, you know, he's not really that terrible of a person. And he said, and, the fam and so they started to write a petition to send to the governor of the state. Because in America, I don't know if it's like that here, the governor or the president has the right, if you violate the laws of that, of the state or of the federal, they can actually pardon you. Or they can reduce your sentence. They can do things, right? So the family wrote, started to, they did a petition and everybody in the house signed it. Everybody in the next house. And they were going to ask the governor a simple thing. They wanted to ask the governor for a stay of execution. Meaning that he would just spend the rest of his life in prison. So everybody signed it. The next house signed it. Everyone on the street signed it. Everyone on the block signed it. Then the next block. Till the whole town had signed the petition. Then the next town and the next town. Till the whole county had signed the petition. Then the next county and the next county. Until finally, as the governor of the state is sitting in his office, baskets and baskets of petitions are dropped into his office. The governor of the state was a Christian. And he was thrilled to see the mercy of his people. Years had passed now. The governor thought about it and he said, you know what? Because these people are willing to ask for mercy and so many were willing to sign it, I'm going to write for this man, I am going to actually write for this man a complete pardon. Not a, not a stay of execution. I'm going to pardon him and he can go free. The governor wrote it all up. And as he was getting ready to go to the state penitentiary to tell the young man the good news, the governor being a Christian decided, you know what, it'd be really nice if I dressed up like a preacher and then went and told him. So the governor slipped on a preacher's robe, put the, put the letter in his pocket, went downstairs, and the limousine picks him up from the governor's mansion and whisks him off to the state penitentiary. True story. The governor gets to the state penitentiary, and the warden is there waiting for him. And the warden says, Mr. Governor, you need to get to death row. And the governor says, yes, I want to go to get death row and see this inmate. He takes the governor up the stairs to where death row is, and, he's, and, the, and the warden is about to lead the governor to the young man's cell, and the governor stops him. No, 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 no. I need to talk to him. You stay here. Which cell is it? It's the fourth cell down. It's open. The governor walks down the aisle dressed like a preacher, walks into the young man's cell, and when he walks in the young man's cell, the young man jumps up off of his cot and says, Get out! governor says, you don't understand. I've got news. I've got good news. The young man says, you're the fourth preacher to come here this week. Get out. The governor says, you don't understand. I've got good news. The young man says, I've been a Christian all my life and look where it's landed me. You get out. The governor tries one more time. The governor says, listen, young man, you don't understand. I've got news. I've got good news for you. The young man says, if you don't get out, I'm calling the warden and the guards, and I'm going to have you put out. The governor pushes that letter deep back down in his pocket, turns from the cell, walks back down where the warden meets him. The warden is thrilled. The warden doesn't want anybody to go free. 
Warden is smiling from, uh, from ear to ear as he walks the governor back down to the limousine and the governor is whisked back off to the governor's mansion. The warden can't contain his joy. He goes running back up the stairs into the young man's cell. He plops down on the cot and he says, how did your visit with the governor go? The young man says, wait a minute. You mean that guy dressed up like a preacher was the governor? The warden says, yep, not only was he the governor, he had a full pardon written out for you. The young man says, what do you mean? He says, quick, the young man says, quick, give me pen, give me paper. They get him a pen and a paper and he begins to write, dear governor, I'm so sorry, I did not know it was you. Writes a whole letter of apology, puts it in an envelope and sends it back across to the governor's mansion. A few days later, the governor gets the letter. He reads it and with tears streaming down the governor's face, he takes the letter, turns it over and writes on the back, no longer interested in this case. The day comes for that young man to die in the electric chair. They stand him, you can play. They stand him up in front of the electric chair. With all the newspaper cameras and the newspaper journalists standing on the other side of the glass container that, from where he is, they ask him, they say, young man, is there anything you want to tell, anything you want to say before you are put to death? The young man stands to his feet, shackled. Tears begin to come down his eyes. He looks at the journalists and the cameras. The young man says, yes! Tell the young men of America that I'm not dying because I'm a murderer. He says, tell them, please, tell the young men of America that I'm not dying because of what I did wrong. Please tell the young men of America that I died today because I refused to accept the pardon. Church, the everlasting gospel it is the pardon. The blood of Jesus is the very ink in which that pardon was written. Christ is the great governor of the universe. And he received the petitions of the sinners of this earth. He saw the condition and Jesus did not put on the robe of a preacher. He didn't come down in the garb of a king or a ruler. My Bible tells me, as the world remembered yesterday, that Jesus was born in a stinking manger, wrapped in the flesh of a child. Just like that prisoner could not recognize the governor because of how he came, there are many who rejected Jesus because he didn't come as a king. But here it is. And in this day and age, the same thing is happening. You see, Jesus is coming back with that pardon. 
just as the first angel says the judgment's already been done or is happening. And he's coming back to give out a reward. And there are a lot of people who aren't going to recognize him. They're not going to want any part of him. In fact, every day they're screaming at Jesus, the great governor of the universe. They're screaming at him, get out! And every day the Holy Spirit is working on our hearts saying, you don't understand. I've got news. I've got good news. Yet some, in spite, despite the fact that God is working tirelessly to save us, we keep kicking him out of the cell that our warden Satan built for us. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed today, the first angel's message is a powerful message. It tells me that there's no reason for me to die in my sin. I'm not disqualified from heaven because I'm a black man. No one's disqualified because they're Asian or white, Latino, Aboriginal. It does not matter, according to the first angel. The first angel says that God has the right to judge because God is the one who created. As every head is bowed and every eye is closed, you're praying. Maybe there's somebody who wants to give their life to Jesus today. I don't know who you are. Maybe you've slipped away from him. I won't take long, but I got to make this appeal. You want to accept the full pardon that is in Jesus Christ. I want you to just raise your hand where you are. You don't, you don't have to move. Just raise your hand. You want to give your life to Jesus. I see hands over here. Praise the Lord. I don't know if the organizers have somebody. I see hands over here and hands over there. Praise the Lord. Anybody else, you want to give your life to Jesus today. In fact, I'm going to ask you to be brave right now, and I'm going to ask you to just stand where you are so they can see you. If you raise your hand, I'm going to ask you to be brave. Don't worry about what people think. They have no heaven to put you in, no heaven to promise you, or no hell to put you in. You want to give your life to Jesus, just stand. Praise the Lord for this young lady over here. Somebody else, you want to give your life to Jesus, praise the Lord. You want to give your life to him, just stand where you are. Praise the Lord, young man. You want to give your life to Jesus. You want to accept the full pardon that has been written in the blood of Jesus Christ. You want your works, to, your sins, to be blotted out of the book of works. You want your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Stand to your feet wherever you are. I see you young people. Praise God for you. Who else? You want to give your life to Jesus today? Just stand to your feet. Praise the Lord, young lady. Praise God for you. Is there anybody else? I won't do this for long. The Spirit is telling me that right now is the time for me to make a call. Praise God for you, young lady. Is there anybody else? Praise God, young lady. Praise God. Anybody else? You want to give your life to Jesus today. You want to give your life to Jesus today. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.